The title of the message this morning is One Cup, One Bread. Two weeks ago, we looked at Paul's example of the entire generation of Israelites who didn't make it to the promised land because of their inability to stay in the race. They were disqualified because of their disobedience, grumbling, complaining, and their idolatry. Paul uses them, we saw last time, as an example to the Corinthians and to us to make sure that we learn from them and that we don't make the same mistakes in our own Christian race. Lastly, we learned that God will providentially make a way of escape for us uh, when we are tempted. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, but instead he will protect and deliver us so that we can persevere to the end, thereby receiving the prize, which is eternal life with him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it would be good if you keep one hand in chapter 10 and one in um, John 6, Gospel of John chapter 6 that Pastor Scott just read. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, this is our, our, our text, is 1 Corinthians 10. Paul surmises all that he said in the first 13 verses by reiterating that the Corinthians should flee idolatry. Then Paul seems to change course in his thought process. Or does he? Beginning in verse 15 onward, he begins talking about the Lord's Supper. And at first, this seems very strange if you're just doing a cursory reading. So we need to ask ourselves, what is Paul trying to say beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. Well, as in everything we do, we, when we study scripture, we look at the entire context. And so that's how we're going to answer our question. Paul, speaking of the Lord's Supper here, doesn't really change his thought process at all, actually. Paul mentions, first mentions, I should say, this at the beginning, the Lord's Supper at the beginning of chapter 10. Paul shows a typology or a prefigurement of it among the Israelites. We touched on this last week, if you remember. Israel experienced this gracious provision from Yahweh as Moses demonstrates in Exodus 16. In fact, if you want to talk about provision, Israel never missed a meal for 40 years in the desert. Now here's the key for our purposes here this morning. Paul calls this literal physical manna spiritual food. It's physical, tangible, can eat it, he calls it spiritual food because it was supernaturally provided 
by God and was from a spiritual source. That would be, obviously, God in heaven. So in other words, the man of provision was a literal, physical event that had spiritual implications. And the main spiritual implication was the providence of God in providing for his children. Are you with me? Okay. Now, by analogy, God had provided the Corinthians with bread of heaven, the bread of heaven, his son, by whom they were saved. And also the bread of his word by which they were sustained. So they were saved and sustained by the bread, the manna from heaven. I'm talking about it spiritual sense here. Now, in our text today, Paul gives this subject direct attention, not like over in the beginning of the chapter when he was talking about a typology and Israel. Now he's giving it direct attention. If you look at verses 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 10, we read, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The first thing that I would like you to see here is that Paul assumes that the recognition and celebration of the Lord's Supper is the regular practice of faithful Christians. That's an assumption he makes. It's a given, like in geometry, okay? It is the regular practice of faithful Christians. After all, in Luke chapter 22, if you remember, verse 19, our Lord Jesus commanded it. He says, it it says, I should say, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the command. And let's not forget 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, okay, that we quote so often when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Here we see Paul quoting the words of Jesus in Luke as he instructs the Corinthians to do this, to remember this, to comprehend this, and to let it well up from the very recesses of their souls, this commemoration and thanksgiving for the Lord's Supper, this celebration of what our Lord Jesus has done for us. But I want you to to garner something additional even to that. I want you to see this not only in Scripture, but also in the very lives of the Christians that have gone before us. We know from just a cursory study of church history that the climax, the climax of every Christian gathering, of every Christian liturgy, was the celebration and remembrance of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, as it was often called, which simply means Thanksgiving. 
I'm going to read a Eucharistic prayer that was often prayed in the earliest congregations that we have written record of. This prayer is dated as having been constructed and prayed between 50 and 100 AD. This is an excerpt from uh, the Didache or Didache, as some people pronounce it, otherwise known as the Twelve Apostles. It's called the Didache or the Twelve Apostles. Either title refers to the same thing. And yes, those of you who have been here at Abiding Grace for a while know that I've read from the Didache before, a few times over the years. Uh, And I have because it's an early, incredibly early, proven, accurate, historical record. As such, it supports many scriptural truths that we hold dear today. At certain times, when the canon of Scripture, or what books to put in the canon of Scripture, was being debated and decided upon, some of these writings were considered Scripture by certain bishops in different geographical regions, and as such, some of these writings were seriously entertained as to whether or not they should be included in the canon or the Bible. That's what canon is, the 66 books. Please let me be abundantly clear if you're going to record me saying anything. I do not believe that they should be or should have been included in the Bible, the Didache, but I do believe that since they were so seriously considered, we should at least do what all the Christians throughout the centuries have done and still do today, actually, and that is read them to gain insight into why the first and second century church found these writings to be so incredibly helpful. In fact, still today, there are many Bible scholars who footnote cross-references of passages from these books in their writings and commentaries simply because they were so influential in the development of Christian doctrine and dogma. Archaic giants like St. Augustine quoted them, as well as respected scholars of modernity like Thomas C. Oden in his biblical theology quotes them extensively. It's important to point out that at this very early time in Christian in the Christian church, the Lord's Supper was commemorated with an actual meal. Okay? They didn't use a wafer and a cup of juice. It was an actual meal. They used real bread and real wine, and it was part of a larger meal that they had when they came together. It was the climax of their gathering together, as I said before. In fact, at this time, most Christians met in each other's homes, and they were called home churches. They started out meeting in synagogues, then they moved to home churches. Now I'm going to read this. Um, These Eucharistic prayers, it's short, because I want you to see 
how seriously they took this, okay? First, they would say the Our Father. And then, before they partook of the cup, they, they would pray this. We give you thanks, Our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be the glory forever. And then when they broke the bread, they would say, we give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be the glory forever. Just as this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and then was gathered together and became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, for yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Then they said, but let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist except those that have been baptized into the name of the Lord. Then lastly, this is what they said in their liturgy in their, in their time together. In addition to those prayers, they said, we give thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have caused to dwell in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be the glory forever and ever. So, pretty serious stuff. Very sincere, I should say. And I just want you to see how serious they took communion how serious they took the Lord's Supper. I, want, I wanted you to see how they talk incessantly about bringing glory to the Father through Christ. It should be a reminder to us every time we have communion of Christ's sacrifice for our sins and as such, our oneness as Paul in our text talks about our oneness with him and our oneness with each other, with other believers. This is what Paul means in verses 16 and 17 of our text, 1 Corinthians 10. When we come together each week to commemorate the Lord's Supper, we spiritually participate in fellowship with Christ and with other believers. Communion is much more than a reminder, okay, with a symbol or element. It is a profound celebration of common spiritual experience that we are all privileged to have in Christ Jesus our Lord. When believers partake of communion in faith, the Holy Spirit uses those symbols the bread and the juice, to awaken our hearts in awareness, or at least we should have our hearts awakened in awareness and appreciation for our Lord's sacrifice for us. That's why we do it. That's why we commemorate it every week, to remember the gospel, which is what the Lord brought us when he manifested himself in human flesh the forgiveness of our sins, eternal life with him. We connect with Christ Jesus, our Lord, 
through this heart awakening, awareness, and appreciation. We connect with Christ. Now, in John 6, if you want to flip there, 31 to 51, I'm going to hit certain verses. Our Lord addresses much of what we've gone over thus far this morning. Beginning in John chapter 6, verse 28, the Jewish leaders said to Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Then in verse 29, Jesus replies to them. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they asked him to do a sign or a work. Again, second time, they ask him. So that they might believe in him, they say, right? And then they become smart, Alex. They say in John 6.31 through 35, they say, you know, it's kind of like a neener, neener, neener. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. In other words, they're saying to Jesus, we can produce a sign, Our ancestor, Moses, prayed to God and he caused bread to appear out of thin air for our fathers in the wilderness. That's our sign, Jesus. What do you got? It's basically what they're saying. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And I don't believe verse 34, it's not clear here, but I don't believe that was the Jewish leaders saying that. I believe it it was the, the Jewish people that were around at that scene and who eventually were told in other narratives believed. Okay, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will not thirst. Now drop down to verse 41. Therefore the Jews were, here we go again, grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, came down out of heaven. Verse 42, they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, who's Father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They were clueless. What other Jews grumbled and complained to a type of Christ? Bingo. The Israelites complained to Moses. You brought us out of Egypt for this, they said. And now the Jews are complaining to Jesus We ask you for a sign, and all you got is on the bread that came down from heaven. Give me a break, pal. That was their attitude. The Jews complained about the bread or the manna that God sent them every day out of heaven, and now they're complaining about the true bread from heaven, Jesus, the incarnate Christ himself, standing right before them. Now, please look at John 6, 47 through 51. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
That was Jesus basically saying, big deal. They still died because they were so obstinate and so disobedient that God killed them. That is a big bug. Okay. Um, Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So here in John 6, our Lord Jesus was indeed confirming that the purpose of his incarnation was to reveal himself as the bread of life who gives eternal life to those who believe. Okay? Well, let's try to tie up some of this. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, not 10, 9. No, I lied. It's 10. (laughs) Paul says in verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Think about that for a minute. Let's sink in. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Please take note of the word share. In the cup, Paul says, we have a sharing in the blood of Christ. And in the bread, we have a sharing in the body. The Greek word for share here is that very popular word that we hear so often, koinia. Koinia means commonly shared by all, okay? It's where we get our word, communion, when we refer to the Lord's Supper as communion, is what I mean. So Paul is saying, those of us who belong to Christ commonly share in his body and blood. But that's not all. It's not all the sharing that is going on. There's other sharing and partaking, Paul says. And this brings us back to Paul's overarching concern for the Corinthians from chapter 8, verse 1, where he began talking about food sacrificed to idols and came forward right here to John chapter 10. Same school of thought. And that is the false worship that was going on in Corinth by those who were sharing and partaking in the cup of demons, Paul calls it. Verse 21. He says, you can't partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's right there in our text. We've been talking about verses 16 and 17 thus far this morning. Now we need to look at what follows. 
Right after Paul says in verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He says, beginning in verse 18, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And he says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. What's Paul referring to here? He's referring to the unsaved Gentiles who the Bible calls pagans. We'll call them pagans, okay? Who were sacrificing to idols made of wood and stone and make-believe Greek gods like Apollo and Artemis and the like who, who were no gods at all but instead were demons. Or there was demonic activity behind them. They were and still are today pseudo-gods, small g, from which fallen angels or demons operate from a place of spiritual darkness to do the devil's deceptive bidding. And remember, Paul pointed out back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, that these so-called idols were not gods at all. I want you to see that because again, Paul's thought no chapters and verses continuing from chapter 8 then chapter 9 and 10. Okay? Please also keep in mind that these demons are not ineffective. They are real and they do real damage. They prey on gullible people with superstitions about mediums and astrology, fortune tellers and the like. These demons can pull off enough counterfeit miracles to easily deceive people, and they do. The Bible speaks of such things in numerous places, okay? Even Israel... God's chosen people, we are told by the psalmist, followed after pagan gods and practices to the extent of even sacrificing, and I'm quoting, their own sons and daughters to demons. Psalm 106, verse 37. Christians are not immune from the influence of demons. Christians are not immune from the influence of demons. A Christian cannot be possessed by a demon, but a Christian can be oppressed or duped, and or duped, I should say, by a demon. When we willingly ignore the Lord's ways and we toy with the things of Satan by setting up idols of any kind, we open ourselves up to demonic influence. A good example of this in the New Testament church is Ananias 
and his wife Sapphira in Acts 5. It is here that Peter rebukes Ananias and says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay? We can open ourselves up to evil influences when we willfully sin and ignore God's conviction in our lives. When we willfully sin and we ignore the instruction of his word. When we willfully sin and we ignore the conviction of his Holy Spirit. I can't even begin to count how many so-called Christians that I've met who regularly watch TV shows about mediums and New Age occultism and practices. They open themselves up to evil influences as they purposely watch things like horror films. So much for Philippians 4.8. I'm going to read Philippians 4.8 in the amplified version because it really drives home my point. Paul says, finally, believers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable and worthy of respect, whatever is right and confirmed by God's word, whatever is pure and wholesome, whatever is lovely and brings peace, whatever is admirable and of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think continually on these things. Think continually on these things. Center your mind on them and implant them in your heart. Don't fill your heart with garbage. Don't fill your ears with garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. I see Christians, and I'm going I'm, I'm to preface this. I, there's nothing scriptural under the new covenant that says that you can't get a tattoo and you can't get a body piercing. Just say that up front. I'm not coming against tattoos or coming against body piercings, okay? But I see Christians getting tattoos of either blatantly evil subject matter or they get body piercings that can have no other use but for sexual perversion. I see Christians exposing themselves to music which plays over and over and over again in their minds. Music with lyrics about fornication and adultery adultery and glamorization of drug use, glamorization of drunkenness, godless independence, vanity, fighting and killing, getting revenge, okay? Lyrics that portray women as, especially in the hip-hop culture, lyrics that portray women as an object for misuse and abuse. We fill our ears and our minds with these things, things that are so blatantly anti-Christ, and then we wonder why we don't feel God's presence in our lives, right? We wonder why we don't feel like reading our Bible. We wonder why we don't have a desire to pray. And I'm preaching to myself, folks, not just you. I'm preaching to me, okay? Ask yourself, would Jesus watch this movie? I mean, I, I hate to get so simplified as to go back to what would Jesus do? WWJD bracelet, right? But what would Jesus move, do? What movie would he watch? Would Jesus listen to this song? We, we, we claim we want to do as the scriptures teach 
and be as Christ-like as we possibly can. We say we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yet we do the complete opposite of what he would do. All of those things that I just mentioned can open you up to demonic influences. And if left unchecked, they can open you up to demonic oppression. Trust me. I, I know I've mentioned this before. I always pref- when you when you preach three hundred sermons in the same church, you're bound to repeat yourself. Okay, but it still bothers me when I repeat myself. But sometimes I have to repeat myself. Okay, so trust me. I know I've mentioned some of these things before, but they do bear repeating. Okay, please see my heart here. Please see my heart. I don't mention these things ever to make it sound like I've got all this ministry experience and I'm some kind of authority. Uh, If you think that of me, then you, you don't know me at all. I'm just speaking from the heart and from the word of God. After years of doing street witnessing, ministering to the homeless and mentally ill after being in prisons, psychiatric wards, and just plain old urban community ministry. And after uh, ministering to young adults from many different countries, cultures, religious faith traditions, okay? I can assure you that I have seen blatant demonic oppression and possession with my own eyes. It's real. And it's something that Christians need to be informed about. That's all I'm trying to do here, inform you about it. And I hate to say it, because I always say it, but it's true. The evangelical church in America does a very poor job with biblical teaching on these subjects. We need to do a better job. The Apostle Paul and others who have penned this inspired word of God that we hold dear, they address these things head on. But for some reason, many Christians have been duped into believing that these things don't apply to them, okay? That these evil forces are far removed from the United States of America. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. Exactly. And as such, we have to remember where I started all this last week. We need to make sure that we don't set up idols of any kind in our lives. That's the first step to going wayward. Demonic forces can easily lay in wait behind the idols that you set up. And one more thing. If you're a true believer and you set up idols in your life, please know that God will chastise you. He will topple and destroy your idols. If you don't, he will. And take it from me, that is a painful experience that you really don't want to go through. Topple your own idols. Don't make God do it because it's painful. 
When the Lord shows you an idol in your life that you've erected and he convicts you to repent and get rid of it, just repent and get rid of it. Don't test the Lord. You will lose every single time. Okay, we have to stop here for the sake of time. But we're not anywhere near done with chapter 10. We're not done with idols. We're not done with the one cup and the one body. We're going to revisit all this next week. And we'll pick up right here. Hopefully I've done some justice to Paul's thought process here. Let's pray.